Well, we are we are going to be in chapter six of Ezra, um, the Old Testament history book of Ezra. We've been walking through this over the last seven weeks, which is kind of incredible that you can be in a book that probably for most of us uh, before this point we've really never paid much attention. Maybe we've kind of read through it in a in a yearly Bible plan, but we've never probably given a whole lot of deep consideration to it and. Uh, it's just been incredible of how practical the wisdom and uh, what we've seen. Um, I think sometimes learning from people's mistakes uh, is the, teaches us the greatest lesson, right? And so we've, we've surely seen over the past several weeks so many of the mistakes that even these returned exiles who had been given uh, a new mission, a new opportunity to go back to the land, uh, but yet how they continue to miss that mark. Um, and it's just been so so practical for our lives. Um, and so just a quick, quick uh, catch up uh, in our story. If you, if you haven't been with us, um, we've been um, really talking through, you know, there was a um, back, uh, the people of God were exiled for 70 years, which means that they were removed from their homeland. And so for 70 years, they lived in, in a place called Babylon under the rule of another empire of another nation. Uh, but God, even through all of that, was making promises that he was going to bring his people back, to return them back to the land. And so uh, they, they were able to do that through God working through some pagan kings uh, in Persia. And they were able to return. We, we talked about how the mission God gave them was to rebuild the temple. And we're going to talk specifically today about the significance of the temple and, and why that was important. Uh, while that was an important place, it wasn't just um, like we think of going to a church building. There was a much deeper significance to the temple there. Um, and so uh, they started out really well. We talked about how opposition came in. And for 10 years, they just kind of threw their hands up and quit. right? And then God, through his prophets, continued to encourage them and move their hearts to get back to work. Um, and then last week, we talked about how even once they got back to work, there was another uh, opposition of a guy, of a leader who came in and said, hey, do you guys have permission to do this? And we, we walked through what it looked like uh, for them to walk in the fear of the Lord versus the fear of man and, and uh, really kind of flesh all of that out. And so as we pick up in chapter 6 today, we're going to be starting in verse 13. And we're going to talk about what happens uh, after they get the letter back from King Darius. Um, the letter says that, hey, you can go back to work. You can continue building. And in fact, we're going to fund this for you. We're going to provide for it. If anybody comes against it, they're going to be messing with Persia. And so we're going to bring the full weight against them. Uh, and so now we see uh, in, the, in the remainder of chapter 6 as they continue and finish building the temple. And so as, we, as we're here, um, we've got to kind of go ahead and just give you the main point, And then we're going to, we're going to talk through those. Um, but today we're going to discuss how when you fear and obey God, there is a restored hope, dedication, and worship. And as we look through the text, those are going to be the three areas we're going to see God restore um, in the lives of the Israelites. And I think that there are areas that God wants to restore in our lives as well. Um, a restored hope, dedication, and worship. And I want to key in just for a second before we get into the text of this word restored. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's actually a word that we have in our mission statement at Bedrock Church, Franklin County. Anybody can tell me what that mission statement is? Bringing red shoes and restoration to the gospel of Jesus. Thank you very much. Bringing 
rescue, right? The rescue of the gospel that Christ came in. But not Christ doesn't just leave us as saved, but he also wants to restore us back to a right relationship with God. And so it's, it's so cool that we can even see this uh, picture of people being restored even back in the Old Testament. And, and, and restoration is uh, it's returning something to its former glory or condition. Right? It's, it's, it's taking it back. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have ever restored anything in your life. Um, I had a real practical moment. Uh, how many of you guys are familiar with cast iron skillets? You guys ever have cast iron skillets? Okay, so you can tell me, when you put water and dish detergent on a cast iron skillet and leave it, what happens? Yeah, and what does it do? Anybody know? It rusts. Right? I didn't realize that this week, so I cooked something really gross and grimy in there, and so I just uh, scrubbed it off and put it out to dry, and when, I, when Nicole flipped the skillet back, I was like, what happened? She flipped. Right? It, she flipped, yeah. Yeah. That was actually my skillet, so she was completely okay with it. Um, but, but yeah, it, it had completely rusted, and so this morning, I was researching, how do, you, how do you fix that, right? Do you just toss it in the trash and done with it? But there's a restoration process. You can do the process of, of still wool and scrubbing and then re-seasoning. You can actually restore that back to its former glory um, and usefulness. And in the same way, we see that God does that in our lives. God restores us back. And he's been doing that since the beginning. If we go all the way back to the beginning, right, of the story. Page one of the Bible, right, God creates man and he creates him to, to be in this perfect existence with God, right? And then as we get to about the third page in the story in chapter three, what does man do? He messes it up, right? He, he completely takes that relationship and he trashes it and he stomps on it and he says, I don't care about this anymore. I'm done. It's, you know, I, I care about myself and what I can get. And he completely breaks this relationship. And, and in the pages of Scripture from, from that point on in Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation, it's this incredible story of a loving, caring God that is working this restoration plan to bring us back to that moment where we're back in perfect relationship with God. We'll talk about that today. And I had another opportunity to restore something. When I was in high school, uh, my dad thought it was a good idea to, to buy me a 1967 Chevrolet Camaro. Um, and praise God that he did, because that was a lot of fun. Um, but when we got it, we thought, I thought, man, I'm going to be driving this, right? I'm going to be driving. I'm 16. I'm going to be driving this. I think I got it when I was 15. Um, and I was like, I'm going to be driving this by the time I'm 16. But then we got into the restoration process. And any of you guys have ever been through that process with a vehicle, uh, I remember we, we drove it home. It had been parked under pine trees for like 10 years. And so it was just completely rusted out. And my mom looked at my dad and she's like, there's no way. There's no way this thing will ever be worth anything. And I remember that moment like five years later when it was done and it was restored. <laughs> yeah, some of you guys know, like five years later and a lot, a lot of money, a lot more than we planned, right? I remember driving it in the driveway and my mom, like her, her jaw hit the ground. She's like, I never thought that this car could look like that, Right. And it was, a, it was a restoration. It was bringing it back to the former glory. And so we're going to see how God does that in our lives, how he did that in the lives of his people, um, and how he wants to do that in our lives. And so before we get reading the text this morning, uh, let's just join together and pray, um, just that God would come and to teach us this morning, and, and then we'll look at chapter 6. So God, thank you for this morning. God, um, your, your mercies are new every morning. God, thank you for your goodness. God, thank you for, um, God, just as we look around, a space to meet in. Um, 
it's not pretty. God, but we can be here together. Uh, we can be community. We can care for one another. We can join in reading your word together, discussing that, singing praises to your name. And so we thank you for that. Father, I just want to ask over the next few minutes as we, um, as we dive into your word that this would be about you, that you would teach us, that you would speak to us, God. Um, even in my heart, God, that if there's anything in me that, that wants to make this about me in the moment, that you would just, you would just kill that, um, Father, and that your glory would be seen through our time together. So we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, restored hope, right? This is where we're going to start at, restored hope. Look with me and read with me uh, chapter 6, um, verse 13 through 15. It talks about how they finish the building of the temple. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the providence beyond the river, Sheth, man, this name gets me every time, <laughs> Shethzar Bozani, I actually, actually worked on that this morning, uh, and their associates did with all diligence what, the, uh, what King Darius had ordered them. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This house was finished in the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So first, let's, let's just point out a few things in the text here that, that really pop out to us. Um, and I think the, the, the first one of those, as we look about this restored hope, look at how, how Ezra, as he's recording this, look at how he's writing about uh, what happened through the leaders of the Jews, right? It says they built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, right? And there was, there, was this, there was this sense that God was blessing what they were doing. Uh, and as Ezra is recording this down, he's seeing it, and he wants us to get that this wasn't just because of their work. It wasn't just because they worked hard. God was in this, and God was doing, and God was with them. We talked about that last week, about how God was with them. And, and, and throughout this series, we have been going back and forth, um, referring back to some of these prophets and what they said to the people and some of the encouragement that they brought from God. And so one of the guys that it mentions in there is a guy named Haggai. In Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 5, look what it says. It says, fear not, right? We talked about that, right? It's so incredible that how, how we wrapped up. If, if we truly learn to fear God um, and lay it all down before him and submit to him, then we have nothing else to fear, right? So God says, fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all the nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Key into this verse. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Um, if you guys flash back in the story, remember um, when they laid the foundation of the temple, there were two groups, right? It said the old men who had seen the first temple, they wept. Right, because, because there was this sense that this was not the same. It was not going to be as big and as expansive as what had happened. But all the other people, they rejoiced right, because God was doing something. And I love this encouragement that God says, you know what? It may not look as, as much from the outside, 
But God's going to do something huge here. God's going to do something big, and his presence is going to come here, and the glory of this new temple is going to outshine the glory of the old temple. So that's ask the question, why? Right? Why would the glory, like, what's, what's the difference, right? And, and commentators are kind of divided. Um, some commentators say that because Herod was going to come by uh, later on in the story and was going to remodel this and actually make it a really nice, glamorous temple. However, I think what, what's referring to here is more the picture that later in the story, Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, is going to actually come to this temple and his presence is going to be there and he's going to teach there and he's going to flip tables there and he's going to be there. And the presence of God wrapped in man is going to show up. And the glory of that is going to outweigh anything that has previously happened. And so it's an indicator, it's a picture pointing to what God's going to do. So God was with them. And he said that his glory was going to be there. Also notice how, how in, in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse uh, 14, um, how it says that, um, look, at, look at how, how Ezra saw or how he perceived who it was that was actually pulling the strings. I think this is neat. He says, they finished their work of the building by the decree of God. And by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. And I think that's, that's interesting how he puts all of that in there. Because as Ezra looked at this, he said, you know what? I'm going to first acknowledge that ultimately this was the sovereign God at play. This was God manipulating and moving and putting pieces into place to bring about this restoration. To bring about these people that were going to come back and to build this temple. And oh yeah, by the way, he used these guys. But man, they were just, they were just uh, <coughs> servants in what God was going to do. These were just servant boys to the most high God. These powerful kings were just servants. And so they finished the temple, right? And so there's this excitement, the celebration, because the temple is now done. It's complete. And now they can get back to the, to the process of worshiping God. And I think in that moment, that sparks some hope. Hope. And hope is an important, important thing in our life. It's an important part of our life. Um, you think about hope, you know. It was once said that you can live three to five minutes without air, all right? So if you can hold your breath in a pool, three to five minutes. You can go three weeks without water, which is pretty incredible. You can go over 40 days without food, but you can't truly live one second without hope, right? Hope is that, that undergirding. If you've ever met anybody or maybe you've been in that moment where you felt like you had no hope, right? A lot of people will say, man, I don't feel like life was even worth living. There was no hope. As we've looked through the story, we've seen that hopelessness play out. But, but as, as God has, has worked through the Israelites, as God has been in this process of restoring and, and building back this temple, there's a restored hope in what God is going to do in the promises of God. And the scriptures are, are filled with places that, that talk about hope and the hope that we can have. Um, one of the most practical places is in Proverbs chapter 13. And it says this, and if you if you never uh, if God's never put this verse in your heart, man, the wisdom here is just it's it's rich, it's deep, um, in so many areas of our life. But Proverbs thirteen, Solomon says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Right? Have you ever been in that moment where you had a hope, an expectation, and it didn't happen? Right? It makes your heart sick. It makes you just hopeless, without hope, without life. But yet, when that hope is fulfilled, it's almost like life that's flowing through you. And so there was, this, there was this hope. And hope is the only way that the rest of the book of Ezra makes sense. 
as we, as we track through the next few chapters of Ezra and we get to the end, it's only going to make sense if they were looking for a greater hope, right? The hope wasn't in the temple. The temple was, a, was, was something God was going to use um, that was powerful, but the hope was in something else. The hope was always that God was going to come and do something bigger than just rebuild this temple. You know, as, as you look through Scripture, again, hope is, is kind of found throughout the pages. Um, and, and one of those places is in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, can anybody, anybody know what they call Hebrews chapter 11? The great, yeah, the great chapter of faith, the hall of faith, right? And it's these stories of these incredible people that, that God used uh, and had, uh, had huge amounts of faith. So you get stories about um, Abel and Noah and Isaac and, and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David and Solomon and Samson. It tells all about these people who had incredible, incredible faith. Right? All of these Old Testament saints that had incredible faith. But in verse 39 and 40, look, look at what the author of Hebrews clues in on this, though. He said, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Right? So even though they were faithful and they were looking, it hadn't come yet. That thing they had hoped in wasn't here yet. Since God had provided something better for us. Right? Can we just say that? Something better. Say better. Better. Better, right? Something, something that is is better that's apart from us uh, that uh, that should not be perfect, should not be made perfect, right? So there's a hope, even in these Old Testament saints, that there was a hope of something that was going to come, that was going to be better, and God is restoring this hope. In Second Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty, Paul says this: For all the promises of God, we shared this in, in like week two. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. Who's Him? Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter the amen to God for His glory. Another one of those prophets um, that, that was coming to encourage uh, the exiles was a guy named Zechariah. Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 9, look at this promise of hope that Zechariah shares with them. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. Daughters of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming, the one that you are looking to, the one that God has promised ever since the beginning, ever since chapter 3, verse 15 of, of the Bible, that God is going to come and bring one that is going to free us from the bondage of sin. Right? He's coming. Righteousness and having salvation is he. And then notice this next line: humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a, on a colt of a donkey does that does that timeline in your mind anything does that like flash forward to a moment in the gospel story right when christ was going to come in on that palm sunday riding in on a donkey and they're going to say hosanna praise praise hosanna right and so here we have this prophet that is speaking that there's going to be something to hope in your king is coming if we jump down to verse 12 Zechariah 9. I love this phrase, and I think this is something we should hold on to. He says, return to your stronghold, right, to God. O prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope. Think about that, right? Are we prisoners of hope? Right? Have we so captured ourselves in the hope of what God's going to do that we consider ourselves, like, just sold out and prisoners of hope? I know in my experience in my life, a lot of times I feel like I'm a prisoner of hopelessness. Right? There's times that, yes, in my head, I'm like, yeah, God's there and, and God can do everything. But God, you don't know what I'm going through. Right? 
And even though in my mind I, I kind of acknowledge that in my heart, right, I don't feel like I'm a, a prisoner of hope. I feel like I'm a, a prisoner of, of hopelessness. I feel like I'm, I just kind of have no hope. And so the encouragement is that God is going to restore that hope. And for them it was the temple, right? Through the temple God was going to restore that. And ultimately what was going to come was this Messiah, the ultimate hope. As we continue in chapter 6, next we see not only restored hope, but also restored dedication. We're going to pick up all this in verses 16 through 18. They, they finished the temple, and so now they're going to dedicate it. Look into the process they do this. Verse 16 says, And the people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, what did they do? They, they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. It's kind of an interesting point. Um, maybe y'all can discuss that in your life groups this week. Verse 18. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So what are they going to do? They're going to, they're going to have a dedication of this temple, right? There's going to be a celebration coming, but they're going to set this temple apart. They're going to dedicate this temple. And how do they do that? It says that they do it with joy, not under compulsion, right? We don't get the sense that they're doing this because they're somehow forced to their tie to some legalistic rules. We're going to see here in a minute that they're celebrating and there's joy that's coming in this dedication. And this word dedication Right? It's not a word that we use a whole lot today. What are some situations that, that we may use that word dedication in today? Baby dedication. Baby dedication, okay? So you come to church, and, and it's a picture that parents want to do what? Can you help me with that? What, what are parents, what, what's the purpose of child dedication, baby dedication? Making a promise. Making a promise that you're going to set this child aside, right, to, to God, that this child's life, hopefully, and, and as parents, it's really more of a dedication of the parents that we're going to dedicate ourselves to raising this child in a godly home under the fear and the ammunition of the Lord, right? That That is, that. so there's the dedication. Anything else you guys think of that gets dedicated? Uh, like the beginning of a book or something? Again? Okay. Like oh, book, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah. So books, a lot of times they'll dedicate that to somebody, right? And they'll, they'll usually someone that has been integral in them writing that or been a big part of their life will kind of, set that person out and, and, and talk about how important that person was. And so dedication just means to set apart for a special purpose, right? This was no ordinary house. It wasn't like they were just building another building, but this building was going to have something important. In fact, in, in Webster, he defines, I guess it's a he, sounds like it would be. Uh, Webster, I've never thought about it, but Webster says this, right? To set aside or apart, and then he puts in parentheses a church, to sacred use with solemn rites, right? There's this idea that we're going to set it apart for a special purpose, and there's going to be an intentionality. We'll come back to that in just a second. And then finally, in verse 18, just notice how, as he wraps that up, as they're doing all this dedication, notice at the process. What is the foundation for that? As it is written in the book of Moses, right? As it is written according to the word of God, the scriptures they had at that time. 
right? That's how they were going to do all of this. And we're going to speak about that. We're going to talk about that in depth next week as Ezra comes onto the scene and brings the word of God and starts to, to reform um, some of what they're doing. Um, we're going to see how the word of God was the, the underpinning foundation for all of that, right? The dedication, right? They're going to dedicate this place, this temple. And, and, and I don't think we get a good understanding of the temple because of our culture, because of a lot of things that we live in. So I'm going to try to illustrate that. Um, Sam was pretty excited this morning. I was bringing out the flip chart. So um, hopefully I won't disappoint you. Um, so to help us understand the temple and the purpose and the value of the temple, okay, I want you guys um, to think about spaces for a minute, okay? Spaces. And so we live in a space. We exist in a space, right? And so in Genesis Genesis 1 and chapter 2, there's this idea that there was the space that man dwelled in, and then there's this idea that the space that God dwelled in, and they were overlapping spaces. And so it's where we get things where God walked with Adam and Eve. God was in the presence of Adam and Eve, and so it's this, this perfect, beautiful picture that they're together. And so this God's space and, and man's space is together, or say it another way, heaven and earth are coming together. They're existing in the same space, right? But as we talked about a few minutes ago, we get over to Genesis chapter 3, right? We get to Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis 3, what happens? There's separation. So now, it's just kind of how we view it, right? I'm probably not necessarily from a, from a literal standpoint. But there's the space that humanity dwells in, earth. And then there's the space that God dwells in. And there's this separation now between God and man. There's this separation in those spaces. And so, and so there's this process of, of how does this work out? And there's, because of what man has done, there's no way that man can, can earn his way. There's no man, way that man can just get back into this God space because of sin, right? Because of this sin that they've committed. And, and it, it, is, it is keeping a separation between them and God. So we keep going in our, in our story of the Bible and our, in our scripture. And we get to a place um, in, in Exodus, Right, and so this is somewhere around Exodus 35. Um, 35, and this goes all the way up to the big G is for the gospel. Okay, and so in Exodus 35, and, and kind of following, Moses lays out this plan of a place that God and man can exist together. And the first place is called the tabernacle, it was this tent, this portable space that they would set up and they could take with them as they were kind of nomadic at this point uh, and they were traveling along. And so you have, so now you have God's face. My circles are off. They're getting worse. Um, and, and you have man's space. You have earth. You have heaven and earth. And this overlap that exists right here, right? This overlap. It was the the tabernacle, right? It was the tabernacle. It was this place that the presence of God could come and dwell amongst the people. And later, that became a permanent dwelling place, which was called the what? Still with a T, it still works. Temple. The temple, right? So the, the tabernacle was the portable <laughs> place, space that God could come and meet with his people. Um, and then the permanent space 
um, was the temple. And so that's what we've been talking about. And what makes this temple so set apart was not that it was this big, beautiful building, but it was a place that the presence of God would come and still could be around his people. But see, there was a problem with that, though, right? Because it wasn't that same picture that we saw back here, right? It wasn't this complete, wonderful, coexisting space where they were both in the same space together. But there were some rules, right? There were some, um, there were some guidelines. There were some things that had to happen in order for these two spaces to exist together. And so one of those, right, was there was a special place set aside in the temple, right, called the Holy of Holies. And it was this place where the presence of God would actually dwell. It would come down, and the presence of God was there. And the problem was that all the Israelites couldn't go in that space, right? Who was allowed to go in that space? Do you guys remember? The high priest, right? And so you have one guy, one guy, and how often was he able to go in there? One time a year, right? And so that is all of the presence of God, is that you got one guy representing all of Israel one time a year to make a sacrifice in this place, right? That is not the picture of what God was going to do in this idea of restoration. So we keep going in our story. So now we get to the Gospels. We get to the New Testament, right? As we get to the Gospels, and this goes all the way to the end of the Revelation. As you get to the Gospels, all the way through the New Testament, there's this picture, right? And there's still this overlap. There's this overlap. I'm trying to think of the best way to draw this, but just try, try smaller shit. And so we still have this space, but it's no longer the temple as the building. What is the space now that God is God's temple? His people, his heart, his church, the believers, right? Because, because of Jesus, because where Jesus came down and died to make a bridge between us and God, right? And so now, you're just going to laugh at my picture, right, of this guy? Thank you, son. <laughs> But in the heart, right? In the heart of man, now the presence of God through his Holy Spirit exists and is there, right? And that's incredible. That's incredible hope for us to think about today is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you put your faith in him, that his spirit is living inside of us. The presence of God is, is in us. Don't you realize that, that just back here, that these people would have done anything to have that, right? They only had one guy one time a year. Right? They would have, they would have, man, they would have desired that and, and just couldn't imagine what it was like, the presence of God. And so we have the Spirit of God living in us. But yet, even in this, as beautiful and as wonderful as this is, it's still not that original picture, is it? Like there's still not all of that space because there's a lot of spaces in our world where the presence of God is not completely intertwined with humanity the way it once was, right? There's things. I mean, as we look around, I mean, read our read newspapers or news feeds, and it takes you just a glimmer of a second to realize that this world is not the way it should be. It's not the way that a good God would have it to be. But yet, as we look at the story of eternity, and what happens in the book of Revelation to the end, saying that's why I wanted the flip chart, right? It's not that, I don't think that if God is going to say, look, look, create and there's going to be something new God is restoring us back right and so we have in the book of Revelation this idea of a new heaven and a new earth a new space 
Um, and there's, there's debate whether this is a literal new space or this is a restoration. I love that picture of a, of a restor- restored space where God and man are perfectly existing in harmony together. And this is what we refer to. This is, this is the hope that we have. This is the hope that we have. And one day what's going to happen is that we get to be in a restored space with our God who loves us. Right? We get to, to move back into this restored space where God and man are existing together and things are as they were back in the beginning before we messed them up. Mm. That's hope. That's encouragement, right? That's, but, but does that give you a picture of why this space was so important, though? Yeah. Right? This wasn't just a building. Right? This was where God was going to dwell. And so there was great joy, but they also set this aside. They set this aside. And for us today, right, we don't go to a temple, but as we talked about, we have the Spirit in us. And so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, right, chapter, chapter 6, uh, and this verse is so much more than just whether or not you can get a tattoo. I heard that yesterday at the men's conference, and I just thought, man, this is so much more than just that, right? But it says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Can we just all read that together again? You are not your own, right? Think about that. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Why do we glorify God? Not just because, uh, because I want to or it makes me feel good, but because this is his temple. Because God is dwelling in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. That my body now takes the place of that temple. And so there's incredible encouragement in that. So we think about dedication, right? And I don't know about you, but in my life, I've had these moments when I've had to reflect on my life and I've had to say, you know what? I need a dedication. I need to, I need to set my life aside for God's purposes and his intentions. I was saved a long, long time ago. I was saved when I was 13 years old and I went from death to life in the moment, right? <clears throat> but the process of that salvation working out, which we call sanctification, that's a lifetime. And I've had these moments in my life that I can look back on and say, this was a moment that God got into my space. And God, through the conviction of the Spirit, said, you need to set some of this junk out of your life because I've called you to be dedicated to me and to my purposes. You guys ever had that moment? You ever had that moment where, where God's called you to, to dedicate or, or some people may even say the phrase, rededicate my life? You ever had that moment? So as believers, those are moments, right? Those are things to think about in our life. Now, I want to give us a warning, though, right? Let me give us a warning as far as what rededication or dedicating our lives looks like and the purpose behind our life, right? So a lot of times, and I'm going to refer to this, uh, or I'm going to, going to try to help you understand that through the idea of diety, okay? I don't know if you guys have ever been on a diet because you're all in great shape and you never need to do that. But for me, there's been times in my life that I've needed to go on a diet and lose weight and get healthy and stuff like that, right? So we'll use me as an example. And so you go on your diet, right, and, and let's just be honest. Right, January 1, right, you hit the gym, you do all these things, whatever, and, and so there's somewhere in the process, right, that you're doing good, you're kind of growing in all this, and then usually for me, it's about January, I'm going to be really gracious, January 15th or so, right, I just can't take it anymore, and so I want that, whatever it is that I haven't had for 15 days, right, and I'm just like, I just, I mean, I just, I tank it, I tank it, right? And then there's usually this really long gap till, I don't know, swimsuit season, right? You gotta, you gotta think about going to the pool or something like that, right? And you get all the way to May, and you're just like, so you just kind of tanked it. 
And so the idea here is that, okay, in May, I'm going to start all over again with this new diet. I'm going to start all over. I'm going to work. I'm going to work. I'm going to work. And then, you know, somewhere along the way, it always drops off again. And that's kind of the process for a lot of us through dying. But that's also the process that happens in our spiritual life a lot of times, right? We'll go through these moments. We'll have these experiences, these, these incredible interactions or experiences with the presence of God. And we're doing good, and we're growing, and, 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 and that is exactly what God wants us to do, and we're, and we're learning. And then somewhere along the way, a situation, or just our own selfishness, something gets in the way. And we just kind of lose focus of that, right? And we drop it off, and we drop back down here. And then we get another one of these moments, right? We have another one of these moments where it's like, man, we just, we just uh, yeah, we, we messed up. Let's try it again. So we're going to rededicate, we're going to start over again, right? And I don't think that's how the Bible tells us how we should live as followers of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's the picture. I'm going to use all my paper in one day. (laughs) My boys will love it, though, because they'll have plenty of paper to cut up, right? But here's here's what I think that process for a believer should look like, and I think we need to understand this, right? And so we are called, right? So there's that moment of salvation, and we're called to grow, in maturity. But let's just be honest. There's going to come moments in our lives that, because of our, like I said, because of our selfishness, because if we lose focus, we're going we're gonna to dip down a little bit, right? We're going we're gonna to lose our focus. We're going to lose focus on Christ. But those shouldn't be moments that we just think, oh, man, we just need to start over and just do this thing again. I just need to give my life to Christ again. I'm going to start all over, right? You're saved. Like, he's got you. He says in John 10 that, that if you're his sheep, that he's got you, and nobody's able to pluck you out of his hand. He's got you. And so, as we encounter these moments, it needs to look more like this. That, yes, we, we take a dip, right? And, and we go through things, and they get hard. And we may, you know, over the course of our life, we may get several of those moments. But the overall trajectory, right, of our spiritual growth should continue to be moving closer and closer. And this, this right here, this is the image of Christ, right? This is what we're going toward. We don't start out here looking just like Christ, right? We're saved by him. But this is a lifetime process of trying to look more and more like him. And so we should continually be growing in that. And I heard, I heard somebody say that if, you are not mat- if you're not the most mature person in Christ today, at any point in your life, you need to really think about and look at your life. Right? We should always be growing in this. And, and yes, we need to acknowledge there's going to come moments. There's going to come still flesh that we <laughs> battle with and, and things that we struggle with. But we should continue to be growing. So I want to ask you guys like, to think about this for a second. Have you had that moment that you set your life apart for God? Um, hopefully you've had that salvation moment. If not, man, we, we would love to talk with you about that today, and we can get that taken care of today. Like that, that is, would be, there'd be nothing greater than for us to tell you and talk to you about how you can come into a vibrant relationship with Christ. But for those of us, and I think that's probably a lot of us in the room that have been on this journey with Christ for a long, long time, for most of us, right? We've had those dips, right? Are you in a place, right? Maybe there, you just need to take that moment today and just rededicate, right? Refocus your life, right? Realize that, man, I've been, I've been kind of sliding here. And I just need to get my focus back, right? Because I know that this is a journey and I need to continue to grow toward godliness. So what I'd like you guys to do, um, as we like to do here, we like to break up in groups. And, and I just want to say, like, it's okay if the groups need to be a little bit larger. I don't want, like, just two people together because that really kind of makes 
not not for great discussion, right? Um, so it's like by the time you heard both, what both of you had to say, it's like, okay, so at least three, four, five, six, whatever. Um, but I'd like you to get into a group, and I want you to discuss this question, right? Um, have you ever had a dedication experience in your walk with Jesus, right? So if you are a follower of Jesus, have you ever had that moment? And if you have, have those moments in your life been more of a commitment to Christ and an acknowledgement that I need to set my life apart? Or have you kind of looked at them as a restart, right? Have you looked at them as a restart? One thing I wanted to, to mention, too, is just as, as a resource, um, if, if that whole picture of, of God's space and our space, like if that was intriguing and you want a little bit more in-depth on that, um, there's actually a really, really helpful video out there um, from the Bible Project. Um, um, from the Bible Project, and so um, it's, it's about a six-minute video that goes into that, and it's illustrated, it, and they draw much better circles than I do. Um, but it's a really helpful place uh, if you want some more information about this God space, our space, and how all that works out together. Um, that's where I got a lot of this information from, was from their video. Um, Bibleproject.com slash explore slash heaven hyphen earth okay and so if you want more information uh do that go watch that video they got tons of other really helpful videos there as well <laughs> but hopefully there's a encouragement for us to uh dedicate our lives to to set our, our lives apart for christ but finally in verse 19 through 22 we're going to see what happens after the temple has been built after it's been dedicated now what do they do well they celebrate Right, And what does celebration look like? It looks like worship. So verse 19 says this, On the 14th day of the month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. Right, like Underline that. That's, that's a huge moment um, that, with so many hyperlinks back to it. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles and slay, uh, returned exiles. For their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the people of the lands to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned their heart and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God the God of Israel. A couple of just textual points for us to, to take note of, right? One is that they keep the Passover, right? This was, a, this was a big, big moment for Israelites, right? This wasn't just, hey, I'm going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving because we do it every year. This was a huge moment in the life of the Israelites, right? This was the moment, this was the feast, this was the, the celebration, but also the remembrance of what God had done, right? So if you guys remember early on in the story of God's people, they were slaves to who? Egypt, right? And so they were slaves in Egypt, and God made a promise that he was going to free them from that. And he used a man named Moses to lead them out, right? And the night before they left, right, there was a, there was, they had very specific instructions to, to slaughter a lamb and to put its blood on the doorpost, right, so that the, the angel of the Lord would pass over their house, and it would protect them because God was going to come throughout the rest of the nation of, of Egypt and was going to destroy the firstborn son. And so this was the protection. And so after this moment, they keep this feast, this celebration, this remembrance of this incredible act of God delivering them 
out of Egypt. And so that's what they do. They keep this celebration. But also notice, right, who is it that's actually joining in this, right? This is kind of interesting. Verse 21 says, well, yes, the exiles, they had it, but also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land the Lord, uh, for the worship of the Lord, the God of Israel, right? And so we get this picture of, like, it wasn't just the exiles here that was celebrating in this. There was also some other people that had joined in the work and joined in the efforts that had separated themselves. And this is going to come into play in a few weeks um, as we talk about the end of this book and what it meant for them. Because, because there's this moment that Ezra uh, and the people end up separating themselves in a pretty extreme way. And this is important under, understanding for us was this wasn't everybody, but they brought in people who were not Jews to celebrate this with them. Um, some of the people who had been a part of that process, and even though we don't, Ezra doesn't give us the names, it's definitely implied here that uh, possibly some people from, from the land, possibly some of those that had come from Persia to help with this, right? They celebrated this together. And this, and this kind of flies back to chapter 4. If you guys remember in chapter 4, um, there, was this, um, there was this moment where the opposition came, right? And they said, that, hey, we want to worship, we, we want to be a part of this temple building, right? We worship the same God as you do. And, and, and the people were like, no, we're going to separate. You're not the same as us. And there's this understanding, if you put these stories together, the overlapping picture was that um, the, the people of God, and even what God was doing, was not just this exclusive separatist mindset, right? Um, it was not just that they didn't want to have anybody come and join them. No one could come and be a part of what they were doing. But there also had to be a price, Right? It wasn't just a narrow-mindedness that didn't allow anybody else to come in, but there had to be a price. They had to separate themselves. They had to acknowledge that, you know what, I'm going to give up all of these beliefs and traditions and all of this stuff from my former, whether that was the people of the land, whether that was the Persians, in order to convert and to completely follow this God, this Yahweh. And when they did that, they were able to celebrate with them. They were able to join in this. And so this wasn't, again, just an exclusive way, but also it wasn't a very loosey-goosey kind of anybody who wants to come in. And either there was a cost, right, for those that separated themselves to worship. And we know that. Like when God calls us to worship, there's a price to be paid, right? It's laying down of ourselves, acknowledging and submitting to him. Um, And so that's what this was. Also notice that as it talks about their celebration, right, it says that, um, what is this in verse 22, it says that, um, that the Lord made them joyful. We talked earlier about how the, this hope had sprung joy, and here we see that the source of that joy was from God. I heard it said yesterday that, you know what, we can't bring ourselves joy. We can't bring ourselves hope. We can't bring ourselves to love people. That's what God does in us. It's the power of God that brings joy. And so God here is bringing joy as they worship to him. And then one other little side note here, just so it doesn't trip you up, it says the king of Assyria. This is just a reference, another name for Darius, the guy who was in charge. Um, but don't lose the fact of what God's doing here, right? Yahweh God is turning the heart of this king in order to use him for his purposes. That's huge, right? Back in this day, the king was the top dog in all of the nation, but yet the king of kings is the one who turns hearts, right? It stirs people's hearts. And so as we think about worship and what this means to restore worship in our lives, right? I, just, I just want to flash us back to what we had said a few weeks ago. What is worship? What is worship? We said that it's, it involves the head, the heart, and the hands, right? 
We talked about how it involves the head. We have to acknowledge and understand and submit to who God is, right? And if we can't truly understand who God is and submit to that, it's never going to flow through our heart or the rest of our body, right? But when we get that, when we understand that, it can't stop there. But if it starts there and we understand the power and the weight and the glory of God, and that starts to move in our lives and starts to transform our hearts and our emotions and our thoughts, then the natural result of that is going to be our hands, the things that we do, the way that we spend our life is going to be in serving him. And so God is in that business. God wants to restore our worship. And so you say, well, what about us today? Do we, do we celebrate the Passover, right? Is that something that we still do? And the answer is yes. But we have to understand that this is an important part to understand it. As followers of Jesus Christ, okay? It's important as a church that we get this. As followers of Jesus Christ, the lens through which we look at the entire Bible has to come through Jesus, Right? And so even as we look at these Old Testament stories and we understand what God was doing, we also look at that through the lens of what Christ. And what Christ said to us is what we do. It's how we live. It's the lens through which it's our framework for everything that we do is what Jesus said. And so Jesus, when he comes onto the earth, he almost gives a new Passover called the Lord's Supper, the communion. Right? It's this picture of him being that slain lamb that was going to sacrifice its life for our life that's going to come in and, and cover our sins um, and keep us from the wrath of a holy God. And so that's the picture of communion. It's the new Passover. And so as we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, all of these names we have for it, it's a picture of looking back to what Jesus did for us. During the break, I was, I was interested to see what Truett was doing. He was drawing something over there, and I was like, what are you, what are you drawing? And he's like, so he showed me this, and he's like, he's like, look. He's like, there's God. And the backwards J, that's Jesus, right? Um, and we're working on that. And um, I probably still couldn't do better than that. Y'all saw my circles. Um, and then he said, this is, this is men and girls, right? And right here it says that there's sin. I don't know if y'all can read that. But there's something that separates us is that sin. And we have to acknowledge today that communion is a reflection back. that There was this huge void that separated us from God. And we could never earn it back. But Jesus came and he paid that price for us on the cross. And so now we don't have to earn it back. Not that we ever could, but we don't have to because he laid down his life for us. And so if we put our life and we put our hope and we submit to him, we have new life in him. And that's our hope. That's our dedication. That's our worship. And so today, um, I can't think of a better way to worship God than for us as the body of Christ to join in this communion, in this celebration of what Christ did. So before we get into it, though, I do want us to have a, an understanding of what this is, what this moment is. Because when Jesus did it with his disciples, it was, this, it was this forecasting, this picture of what he was about to do. But then later on, Paul comes back and he helps us to understand the significance of, of what Christ did in that moment. And so you may be familiar with this passage. I know we've read it in other times that we've, that we've talked about communion, the Lord's Supper. But I just want us to go through this again one more time just so that we have a proper understanding. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Okay, so, so God, Jesus gave me this, and so now I'm going to give it to you. Okay, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, right, that he took bread and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, or he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, 
he took the cup after supper and saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a reminder, a constant reminder, just like Passover was. And whoever, right, here's the warning Paul puts in there, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, right, uh, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ, right? If you come in and you haven't accepted that, if you haven't submitted your life to Jesus and you take that, you're taking something that's not yours. You're taking something that you haven't accepted. And really in that, you're dishonoring the sacrifice that Jesus has said. So if, if that's you, obviously today we want you to, to make that decision and join in with us. But if you're still at that place and you're still wrestling through that, say withhold today, don't take that, right? Because of this warning. But look at us what he says. He says, let a person examine himself and then and as so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Right? There's this idea of examination. It's an idea, it's a moment of dedication, of examination as we look at our life. And so as we enter into this moment of communion and celebrating what it is that the Lord has done, as the body of Christ, as, as this community, as we, as we celebrate that, as we look to Christ as our example for what he did, this becomes also a moment for us to reflect in our lives, like what's happening. Where's my heart? Are there those things, those spots in my heart that I've kind of allowed other things to get in there? And this is, this is a moment for us to just to lay those out before our Heavenly Father, right? As, as the Bible says, uh, we get the pictures just to lay prostrate before, before a, a holy and righteous God. And so we're going to give all of us some time this morning. Um, we're going to all have some time to think about this. And... Um, we're going we're gonna to celebrate in, in communion here in just a few minutes. Um, but what I want us to do is, is communion is also, yes, it's, it's an individual expression um, of, of what Christ is doing in our life, but also there's this kind of community aspect of that too, right? They were, the, when, the, when the disciples, they were doing this with Jesus, they did this together. There was a group of them was sharing in this. And in the, New, in the New Testament, it talks about how they came together and they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so I think it's, it's completely appropriate, and even though it may be different than the tradition that you may have grown up in or been experienced to, I think it's still good for us to come as a community together to the Lord's table and to celebrate this and to realize that we play a role in each other's lives. And so here's how we would like to do that this morning. Um, we're going to just have some music playing, uh, and I'm going to put up a question for you guys to discuss. This is going to be our kind of community question for us to talk about this morning, and it's really just ask the question about what is communion um, and why is communion a great picture of worship? And as you and your group discuss that, and as you finish that, uh, I would encourage you, take time in that. If you want to pray for each other, if there's something going on, that you can share that with another brother or sister in Christ, right? Examine yourself through, through that. And when you're ready, if you're a follower of Jesus, right, we invite you to come over and to take the bread and the cup.